Well, amen. We have almost accomplished what few have dared to do. And we are one week from completing our study of Leviticus. Um, I thought about and actually could have uh, taken these two chapters tonight and added them to last week. And then finished this week, but decided that there was way too much there to cover in one week. So um, this is going to, in some ways, sound like part two to last week in, in little ways that I think that you'll hear. Uh, but I have given this t- a title that's, that stands alone. We are going to look at living before the presence of the Lord. And the outline tonight is found in the back of your bulletin. And there are three points, of course. And the first is that we're going to look at the apparent symbolism of the lampstand and the bread of presence. We are going to look at the additional rhythms of the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And then lastly, we'll look at the appropriate responses of God's people both then and now. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so very, very much for our church and for this study that we have undertaken. And we would ask that you, by your spirit, would allow us to appreciate the richness. Continue to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption that you have graciously made us a part. We praise you for revealing Christ week after week by promise and shadow uh, through these words in this book. Help us to understand them. May we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. And may we be more confident in, may we rest more fully in and trust more deeply in him and what he has done for us and what he's gifted to us. And I pray these things in the name of Christ, who is the light, the bread of life, our Sabbath rest and redeemer. Amen. Well, for the last 14 weeks, we have walk through what Dr. Michael Morales has called the drama of how the tabernacle becomes the tent of meeting. Another way to put that would be of how God's dwelling becomes Israel's meeting uh, meeting place with him. And over the course of our study, probably the one phrase that I've repeated most often that if I actually asked you what it was, you could probably say it, but And that phrase is this, the goal of both creation and redemption is God's dwelling with his people in his house. We've said that over and over. And if there has been any doubt along the way, if there has been this little inkling of, well, I'm not quite sure if that's in fact true. If we look into the tent of meeting itself, like we're going to do tonight, and we look particularly at the the lampstand and the table of the bread of presence. I think all doubt is eliminated. And here's what I mean. In chapter 24 that Wes read earlier, it begins with the Lord commanding Moses to tell the people to bring a very, to make and to bring a very fine, a very pure and highly valued olive oil. That might be used in the lamp to keep that lamp or lamps continually within that holy place, within the tabernacle, continually burning all night, every night. And I say lamp or lamps because the lamp itself was made of seven smaller lamps. 
if you've seen a menorah or you, you've seen a picture of a menorah, that's, that's what we're talking about, that, that kind of, uh, of lamp. And we know from Exodus 25 and Exodus chapter 8 that that lamp was to be placed or fixed in a way that, and to quote Exodus 25, it gave light to the space in front of it. And that space in front of it was occupied by the table of the bread of presence. It was a three foot by one and a half foot table that had a gold top and it was sat low to the ground. And that table on that table were to be 12 loaves of unleavened bread. And the people were to bake that bread on a weekly basis and bring it to the temple. And and those loaves were actually made. Each of those loaves was made with three and a half or estimated a three and a half pounds of flour. So we're talking large loaves. And so because of that, they had to be stacked on the table in two stacks of six so that not only did they fit, but the utensils and other things that were to be on the table fit as well. So the great high priest would have to do a couple things in, in light of this. One is every day, both at dawn and dusk, they would have to attend to the, the lamps. And then once a week, they would have to take the old bread and remove it and put the new bread on it. Now, practically speaking, because of the thickness of the the curtains around the tabernacle and over the tabernacle or that made up the tabernacle, uh, practically speaking, it was it was very dark. And so the lamp would be needed within the within the tent of meeting to provide the light that the priests would need to carry out the rituals. And of course, the bread was needed because the priests needed to eat. But these things were there for much more than practical reasons. There is an apparent, a very apparent symbolism within the tent of meeting with these two objects. First, the the continual burning of the lamp reminded the people that God and, and the Lord was not only the creator of light and the creator of darkness, but that he as the light, the eternal light and, and was shining in the midst of darkness and that he was to be worshiped. In the light and not the darkness. The 12 loaves on the table represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were placed, what? In front of or in the light provided by the lamp. And it was to remind them that God had been gracious to them. God had turned his face toward them. He was shining upon them. They had been blessed. They were in his sight. They were experiencing Sabbath rest as well as fellowship. And this fellowship was also symbolized by the priests as they would take that bread every week and eat it in a holy place. So what we have is this picture of God preparing a table before them, them eating of the bread and having their lives sustained. And they were doing that as representatives of the people in the presence of the Lord. Now in chapter 25... That Wes read portions of. We also see some additional rhythms. And to understand what I mean by additional rhythms. We have to look back at last week for just a minute. And if we remember the Lord built in a regular rhythm of six days of of work and one day off. So six on, one off. And they were to take that one off. And they were to gather together and they were were to worship. They were to experience rest. They were to stop doing what they could do the other six days and do something different. And he also built in, we said he built in five seasonal feasts that provided another seven days of rest for them. 
And we said we noticed that there was a reverence and a remembrance and a rest cadence to each of them. Well, here in chapter 25, we have two additional um, two additional rhythms. The first is a seven year rhythm. And it was called the Sabbath year. And so every seventh year, the Lord commanded the nation of Israel to to cease and to not plant grain in their fields or to tend to or prune their vines. Now, they could harvest whatever grew naturally, whatever grew on its own. They could harvest and they could eat, but they couldn't sell it for profit and they had to share it. They had to share it with the servants and the employees and the animals. And it was a solemn day of rest for the land. The second rhythm that is included is a 50 year rhythm. And every seventh Sabbath year. So the Sabbath year was every seven years. So every seven sevens or 49 years, a trumpet would blow on the day of atonement. And mark the beginning of the year of what was called Jubilee. And the same thing pertained to the year of Jubilee as did to the Sabbath year. They could not plant any grain. They could not, um, they could not prune their vines. They, they could harvest and they could eat but not make profit. But the difference about the year of Jubilee, there were some additional things that took place. One, all of their debt, every single bit of debt was canceled. Land was, or slaves were set free, and land was returned to the original owner. So every 50 years, so it was very common for people to fall into financial trouble, and when they did, they would either sell them, sell land, either for themselves or for a family member who had fallen into financial trouble, or they would, uh, well, they would sell the land or sell themselves into slavery. To, to pay for what it was they owed. But everything in that process, in that economy, was prorated based upon how soon the, the year of Jubilee was to come. And then when, that, when it would come, and, and they could see... So basically, if they sold themselves into slavery or if they sold the land, they always had in mind... There was always light at the end of the tunnel because they knew that the slavery would not be forever and that the land would be returned and the debt would be canceled. There was hope built into that. They knew that freedom would not be forever, nor would their debt. And what was theirs would be theirs again. Now, in light of the fact that God was dwelling with them and they were dwelling with him and meeting with him. And in light of the fact that the fellowship that they were experienced was symbolized in the tent of meeting and with the, the lampstand and with the presence of the, the bread of the presence. And in light of these Sabbaths, as we've said over and over and over again throughout our study, the Lord expected them to live in light of that fellowship. They, there was a way that they were to live among one another because of who they were and what God had redeemed them from and who he had declared them to be. And so there was an appropriate way to live in his presence. And, or, or again, in another way, there were appropriate responses for them in light of 
what he had done. And there are three in particular in these two chapters that I want to draw our attention to. And the first is this. They were to revere his person. In other words, they were, they were to worship him. And this was very, very important. Important. He was to be held in high esteem. So much so that even his name was to be protected and not taken in vain. It was not to be blasphemed. His, his name was to be hallowed. His name was to be set apart. His, he was there. His name had been placed upon them and he was theirs and, and they were his. And his name marked that. He, and he, re, he revealed himself by the name that he had sealed them with. That name by which he had revealed them was not to be blasphemed. It was not to be taken for granted. It was not to be intentionally misused. It was not to be used in in a profane manner. It wasn't to be used or sworn by um, in a false manner. It wasn't to be treated lightly or nonchalantly. And it was... His name was a reflection of who he was. Anyway, that, that... that love and that reverence was to be for him. And it was, it was, it, one of the ways that you could do that or they were to do that was by revering his name. And to not do so brought severe consequences. And we know that from the narrative that's in, found in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 24 that Wes read. The narrative describes a young man who basically curses God with God's own name. And he's sentenced to death. And it was so severe that the, the, the crime was so severe. It was such a so offensive to the Lord that even those who heard it. Had to go to the one who was to be stoned. And prior to them, him being stoned, they would have to place their hands upon him. And symbolically transferring their guilt for even hearing it onto him so that his death would not only pay for his guilt, but theirs as well. And it was, we read at the end of that narrative that this was a consequence that was to be the same moving forward regardless of who committed the particular sin. And of course, the inevitable question is, why death? Why death? And in verses 17 to 23, we're told why. It's because the punishment fit the crime. And we have to understand that for the punishment to fit the crime, the the crime had to be severe to cause death. and And we struggle with that. And I said this a few weeks ago. We struggle with that. We struggle with the severity of the punishment that this, this individual experienced, and, and we, we struggle with the punishment that Nadab and Abihu experienced, but what was the cause? The cause was they had, they had blasphemed the Lord, and we struggle with that because the holiness of God has been downgraded, and our sinfulness has been downplayed. We don't think in these terms of the offense of our sin. And the holiness of God. 
So the point is the Lord is worthy to be held in high esteem. He's worthy to be honored, praised, glorified. They were to revere his person. Secondly, the second thing we notice, they were to revere his person. They were also to trust his provision. The Sabbath and festival rhythms provided avenues for the people to live dependently upon him. To trust the Lord to meet their needs both physically and spiritually. So they had eight and a half weeks of Sabbath days that were to be, that, that he had declared holy, in which that they could trust that what he said and what they needed to live could be acquired, it could be earned or gathered six out of the seven days. They were to honor and take the Lord at his word. Every seventh year, every Sabbath year in the land, they had to trust that the land would yield enough food for all of them, even though they weren't going to plant or to prune. They had to know that in every 50th year that the Lord was going to provide to quote there in Leviticus, he, they had to trust that he would command his blessing on them in the sixth year so that it would produce a crop sufficient for three years. And when they sow in the eighth year, they would eat of old until the ninth year when its crops arrive. I mean, think about the length of time and there's debate about this, but, but we need to think about this, right? Seven every 49 years so seven sevens. Well, the seventh year, that Sabbath year, they were to what? Not to plant and not to prune. On the 50th year, they were not to plant and not to prune. So that's two years of not planting and pruning. They had to trust the Lord. Would he do what he said he was going to do? And I know that seems like an oversimplification, but that's really the bottom line. Sabbath observance was more than, but certainly not less than, a matter of either trusting the Lord or not trusting the Lord. It was, would he do what he said he would do or not? Would he, would he, would the Sabbath benefit them or not? Could he be trusted? And would they do what he called them to do or would they do what they wanted to do? And the answer is he would. And so those who are living in his presence were to respond to that truth. And that they would that they were going to trust his provision. Third thing we see is that he honors they they were to honor his people. They were to be fair in their business dealings. They were to pay the appropriate price for what they had received. Uh, If a family member was struggling financially, they needed to take care of them. They were even to sell their own property for them. If their if their family member had already sold themselves into slavery or had already sold their land, the family members were to be kinsmen, redeemers. And to pay whatever debt was owed to get them out of slavery or to get the land back. They weren't to charge interest on loans or seek to make a profit in the sale of food. And if they did pay the debt for the family member, they didn't treat the family member like a slave But they allowed the family member to work in order to pay back that wage that had been paid on his behalf. The bottom line was that there was always going to be poor among them. And they were to seek to do whatever they could to take care of them. To take care of one another. 
one another, the sojourner, the poor. And, and all of these obligations were to point to the fact that they themselves had been redeemed. They themselves had been taken care of by the Lord. They themselves had been redeemed and set free. They were no longer in bondage. So they were to live as they had been treated. They were to treat others as they had been treated. They were to honor his people. And, and, and again, the year of Jubilee made for certain that they knew that the slavery would not be forever. The debt would eventually be paid. So we ask the question, are we obliged to respond in the same way? Are we obliged to respond in the same way? And the, the answers are resounding yes. We are. But I want us to think for a minute because the motivation, I believe, is a little different for us in our response. And I mean our motivation is different because the symbolism within the tabernacle, the symbolism within the Sabbath, the symbolism of the year of Jubilee, actually they all find their fulfillment, full and final fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled all of these things. And it's his birthday that we're celebrating, right, children? We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. And all of these things, as we've talked about all uh, throughout the fall, all of these things point to him. He is our motivation to respond rightly. Think about this. Jesus Christ is the light. Here from the book of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Later on in John, Jesus says himself, Jesus spoke and he said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see the lampstand pointing forward to Christ. He was also the bread of life. Again, in John chapter six, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread on the, the, the bread of the presence. Christ himself. Jesus Christ is also our Sabbath rest. Matthew 11, as we read last week, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul. He is our true Sabbath rest. He's our kinsman redeemer. Right? Hebrews 2 tells us that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so what has our brother done for us? Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews chapter 9 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The ultimate kinsman redeemer. He's our jubilee. Christ is our jubilee. He Himself said, quoting Isaiah 6, 
the spirit 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? To proclaim the year of Jubilee. And what he inaugurated in his first coming, he is going to fulfill in his second And what's going to happen when the second, when he comes again, a trumpet will sound. Behold, 1 Corinthians 15 says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The trumpet announcing the jubilee. Christ will return and make all things right. Jesus Christ is also the name above all names that is to be exalted and revered. Philippians 2, well, Matthew 1 says that she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And then in Philippians chapter 2, what do we hear about this name that Mary was to give him? Though he was in the form of God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus also took on the just and righteous and proportionate punishment. Not for himself, but for us. Isn't it interesting that he was, what were the charges leveled against him? He was called a blasphemer, a blasphemer. He was punished for being a blasphemer. But he himself wasn't a blasphemer. He himself was God. Why was he punished? He was punished because we blaspheme him. We know from Romans chapter 5. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So, brothers and sisters, we should respond appropriately. That is the call to respond appropriately. And we, like the Israelites, as the people of God, we we revere his person. We worship him. We adore him. To the point, and we, we protect because of how we feel about him, we protect his name. We don't take his name in vain. Because His name is hallowed. It is to be holy. His name has been placed upon us. It marks us. He is ours and we are are His. It's not to be intentionally misused. It is to be... It isn't to be used in a profane manner. It isn't to be used or sworn by in a false manner. It's not to be used nonchalantly. We're in fellowship with Him. Right? He is ours. We are His. His face has been turned toward us. He's been gracious to us. He is holy and altogether other. He's 
He is the one deserving of all blessing and honor and glory. We're to revere Him. We revere His person. We're also to trust His provision. Right? The Lord's day for us provides an avenue for us to live dependently upon the Lord. The Lord's day provides us that, that rhythm provides us an opportunity of every six days of every seventh day of resting and trusting in him. Right? That day has been set aside by him and we can trust him that, that what we need or what we need to acquire or earn or attain can be done six out of seven days. We're to honor and take the Lord at his word that money's going to be there, work's going to be done, get done. The goals that we've set are going to be reached. I think it's not... A, I don't think it's an oversimplification. It's just we can take him at his word or not. We can trust him or not. We can believe what he says or not. Will he do what he has said or not? Will the Lord's day benefit us? We can trust him. He is faithful. And finally, we're to honor his people. We're to deal faithfully and honestly with each other. We're to take care of the poor among us. We're to look out for one another. Those who are struggling in our midst. We are to be willing to to take on one another. And to provide for one another. There should never be anyone among us. As a church. That is going without food. Or going without a home. There was a story Wendy and I heard. Broke our hearts. While we were in seminary. Too long ago. And there was a young couple in a Sunday school class in a local church. And they had just recently had a young baby. And the parents, the people in the Sunday school class began to hear or to notice that, that the couple was losing weight. And so every Sunday the, the couple would show up and they would, had lost a couple more pounds. And the class began to ask, man, what is your weight loss plan? We want to know. Because it's working. And they finally came out with it. And the baby was having digestive issues and needed a special formula. And they couldn't afford to feed themselves. They could only afford the formula that the baby needed. And nobody knew. May that never be. May that never be here. We are to step in in those unforeseen circumstances. And when people join the church, we ought to be able to say to them, you will never go hungry. You will never go without the essentials. We take care of one another. Now, we read these three appropriate responses. And and while they, as the law does, point us to how we are to live... In light of who we are, how we are to live in his presence. They also convict us, right? As the law does. And we read these these responses and we realize that we don't respond as well as we should or could. We don't respond consistently as we could or should. And we have to admit that we that we don't revere his person and trust in his provision and, and, and take care of or honor his people as we are. But hear the good news. Hear the good news. Though these responses should characterize us as those who are living before him. 
our standing, our position, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification are not resting on how well and how often we do and respond in these ways. It's not. Our salvation, your salvation, my salvation is resting on and only found in the Lord Jesus. Our light, the bread of life, the light, our light, the bread of life, our Redeemer, our rest. May we always look to Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we...